Andrew's on slides this morning. Have fun, Andrew. There's a lot of slides. <laughs> All right. Over the past several weeks, we've been taking a careful look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 11, and with a particular focus on coming to terms with or trying to answer the objection that many people have to this and to other passages of Scripture in which God commands that certain people, groups, be killed or plundered or both. In this passage, seven different people groups are mentioned. And for some reason, people have difficulty understanding or squaring that a good God, who is the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is good, can at the same time be an avenging God or a punishing God, who the God of the Bible is that as well. And there are many concepts that come into play here. God is just, and as a good judge rules justly, there must be a penalty or payment for sin. God is also holy, so in addition to his attribute of being just or righteous, another reason he cannot tolerate sin is he must remain completely separate from it. And although sinful people can have no ill effect on God, if there were such an encounter between God and sinful people, the effect of God's holiness on the sinful people is that his holiness would consume them. As Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. And we've looked over the past few weeks at three out of four doctrines that hopefully have helped us to answer the question of why God commanded the destruction of nations. Perhaps it may be helpful to say instead that question could be phrased, why was it right for God to command the destruction of nations? Today we will look at the fourth doctrine that I believe has bearing on answering this question. So the four doctrines that we've been discussing are these. The holiness of God, the dangers of sin, the wrath of God towards sinners, and today we look at the sovereign will of God, or put another way, God's choice. We are going to look at what Scripture tells us about the divine prerogative of God. That is, His right as Creator, as the self-existent, eternal God of all creation, His right to choose whatever it is that pleases Him. We will look at how in our passage today He chose Israel for no other reason other than that He loved them. And then we will shift our focus to how God has chosen to save the elect. So let's read our passage from Deuteronomy once again, and we will get into it. Starting at verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So we have said thus far that the answer to our question, why did God command the elimination of these people, is involves a combination of these things. God's holiness, which demands that sin be punished and eliminated. Second, the dangers of sin. The danger of being near sinful people and the natural consequences of our own sin. Part of those consequences being the natural consequences of life, such as violating the law against stealing and then being punished by a human court. That's the natural consequence. Ultimately, the worst consequence of sin is being subject to the wrath of God. The people groups God demanded the Israelites conquer and destroy were exceedingly sinful people. They earned the wages of their sin, which is death. We said how we can be thankful we do not receive these same wages immediately each time we sin. And if this were the case, none of you would be here to listen to me this morning, and most certainly I would not be here preaching to you this morning. We also know there is an absolute truth in the idea that being around sinful people who are sinning all the time puts us in a situation where we will be more likely to be tempted into sin. And the wrath of God is on all unrighteous people. He is angry with sin always. And this in no way violates his loving nature. After all, his love is perfect. And since he loves perfectly, his love also means he doesn't want his people damaged by the effects that sin has. So God's holiness, the danger of sin... And God's wrath towards sin all give us insight into not only why God could order the elimination of those people, but he should do it. Or you could say it was 
good that he did it. But now we must ask ourselves, why does Israel get this special treatment? Why were they given authority by God to eliminate these sinful people? Hadn't they shown themselves to be sinful also? Were they not also bent towards sin? They were bent towards sin. And yet, God chose them to be vessels of mercy. Keep that phrase in mind. Vessels of mercy. We're going to be coming back to that phrase later. In our main passage of study this morning, we see the reason God chose Israel is not based on anything within themselves, no special characteristic of theirs, no good deeds they had done, no payment they had made to him, and no nice thoughts he detected coming from their heads. Heads, by the way, which Moses said were attached to stiff necks. None of that. No, it was not because they were the largest nation either. No, the only reason that God gave for choosing Israel to be his beloved nation in verse 8 is this. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Another way to say this is that in choosing Israel, God made a sovereign choice. God has the absolute right to do whatever pleases him because he is the ultimate sovereign. What is a sovereign? Well, it's a pretty straightforward definition. If you go to the dictionary, it's, it's a very quick and short definition. A sovereign is a supreme leader, a monarch, not the butterfly, but the king. Today, we do not really relate to very well from our own experience what that means to have a human sovereign. Queen Elizabeth was, and now King Charles is the monarch of England, but because they have a parliamentary system, the crown does not hold nearly as much power over people's day-to-day lives as it used to. If there were ever a perfect king, then people would love to live under his rule. They would enjoy it. While there is no perfect human leader, Solomon is held up in Scripture as one who was a very good leader in the beginning. So full of wisdom and able to see justice done that everyone wanted to serve him, including other kings and queens. The queen of Sheba came to see Solomon and commented how enjoyable it was for his people to be ruled by him. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 10. Starting at verse 6, she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. 
And then the queen of Sheba gave a present to Solomon, 120 talents of gold, about 9,000 pounds of gold. And today's money, I calculated last night on current rates, is about $250 million gift. It's a pretty big gift, right? Living under King Solomon's rule was a delight. There was peace and prosperity for one of the longest times in Israel's history. Long enough to build the temple, long enough to build the house of the cedars of Lebanon, and long enough to accumulate so much wealth that silver was valued as nothing during the reign of Solomon. And yet, Solomon did not finish well. And so his reign near the end was marked by invasions and his own giving in to the whims of his many wives which only went to prove that what we are studying in Deuteronomy 7 is true. God rightly predicted that foreigners would turn his people aside to serve other gods if they married them. It came true with Solomon, who was granted one of the greatest gifts men had ever received from God, a wisdom beyond compare, and yet even Solomon in the end did not rightly apply that wisdom. He was sovereign, but only for a while, and only as with any other sovereign because it was God's will and pleasure that he should rule. So a sovereign is a supreme leader. Within their realm, no one is higher, and their word or command is law. Remember the old Exodus movie, or Ten Commandments? So it is written, so let it be done. God is sovereign as creator of all, the self-existent, eternal God of all. His realm includes everything and everyone from earthly creatures to spiritual beings. All are subject to the reign and rule of God Almighty. According to the Lexham Survey of Theology, God's sovereignty refers to his absolute and unrivaled rule over all his creatures and their circumstances. Put another way, nothing that happens anywhere or at any time ever happens outside of God's absolute and unrivaled rule. Now here's three thoughts I jotted down as I was considering how we ought to understand God's sovereignty. First of all, if God says something is good, it is good. Second, if God says anything, it is right and true. And third, if God communicates something, we are to respect it and honor him by believing what he communicated to us. Now, I'm about to prove to you by God's word that he is sovereign. These verses are going to be given rather quickly, so bear with me. What I would like for you to do is not take my word for it, but search the scripture and see if these things are true. You evaluate for yourself whether or not this is what the Bible teaches. Remember, the Bible is true. It's without error. It's perfect in every way, but I'm not. So make sure that what I say is true based on our only standard of truth, the Bible. God is sovereign in that he is the owner of everything. All of the entire known and unknown universe. Here are four, teaches, four, four verses that teach us that God is owner of everything. 
Genesis 14, 22, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's ownership language there. Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Job 41, 11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We're all his property. Why does it matter that he's the owner of everything? Because the owner of anything gets to decide what to do with it. The owner has absolute authority. Psalm 47, 2, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then in verse 7, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. He's in complete control, including in salvation. Jeremiah 5, 22, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Ephesians 1.11 shows us something about God's sovereignty and salvation. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His will. In Job 38 through 41, there's some pretty amazing chapters there where we find a catalog of God reminding Job that Job is in no place to question God because he wasn't there when the foundation of the earth was laid. He did not know the measurements of the earth. He wasn't there when the stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. He doesn't know how God keeps the sea where it is. He doesn't know how God forms the clouds. Job can't command the morning as God does or understand what death really is. He doesn't know what causes the weather or what the stars really are. God asks the rhetorical question of Job, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds? Who can make it rain? Who makes the lion hunt? And who gives the raven its prey? He asks Job if he knows when the mountain goats give birth. Question after devastating question, God asks Job, tearing down any illusion that Job might have had that he understands God and his wisdom. Job's complaint was that he did not deserve the things that had happened to him. And God gives him the tongue lashing that causes him to admit that he cannot know the true reasons why God does what he does. And Job wasn't questioning God's sovereignty I don't think. I think he was questioning his fairness. Why me? But after this crushing monologue, and you'll have to go read it for yourself because it's too long to read this morning, but it's in Job 38 to 41. You can read about this. Job is brought to admitting that God can do whatever he wants to do. Job 42, 2. Job finally answers, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Bible also assigns many titles of sovereignty to God. He's king, Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Zechariah 14.9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 
1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to honor, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And God is the sovereign. Acts 4.24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In 1 Timothy 6.15, it says, He will display at the proper time. He was blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. The sovereign titles show his sovereignty with the utmost and highest reverence. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, I think I did that one already, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer him, them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. In Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's also sovereign over all nature, including hurricanes. Psalm 135, 6 and 7, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 147, 15 to 18, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. Thank God I'm in Florida. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Job 37, 11 to 13, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Do you see the reasoning there? Why God might do that? Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Job 38, 25 to 27, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on a desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. He's sovereign over nature. He's also sovereign over human history. So Genesis 41, 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is when Joseph was defining the dream of Pharaoh and telling him what was going to happen. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 21.1 says that even a king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Acts 17.26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God determined where he would live and how long. He controls what seem to us to be random events. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Jonah 1.7, 
Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. He is sovereign over events that seem to harm his people or thwart his purposes. Genesis 45, 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God, Joseph said to his brothers. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And again in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Psalm 2, 1 through 6, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Acts 2.23, uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again in Acts 4.27 and 28, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God rules also over all and does what he pleases. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. What God determines to happen cannot be stopped or challenged. Job 9, 12, behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Isaiah 45, 9 and 10, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a mother, With what are you in labor? Romans 9, 19 and 21, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And here's what our response to God's sovereignty should be. Worship. It should cause us to worship. First Chronicles 1631, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 2, 10 to 12, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, all who take refuge in him. Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Isaiah 45.22-23, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. 
By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Philippians 10, uh, 2, 10, and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we having fun yet? 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, honor and glory, and forever and ever, amen. In Revelation 19.6 and 7, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. You either believe God is sovereign or you have chosen to hate his rule and want to deny it. But in our hearts, we know God is in control. And so it is that he could rightly command Israel and rightly choose Israel for salvation, even though they, like those who they were about to kill, were guilty of many sins against God as well. Yet God showed mercy and grace to Israel by loving them. That love included giving them the restraints of the law to keep them from sinning, which would bring them harm. Just as God loves Israel because he sovereignly chose to love them, he sovereignly chooses to save the elect. We know that throughout history, many people have hated the Jews. It's an indisputable fact that the Jews have been hated to the point of people trying to exterminate them and in many ways, even when they were not, there were not Nazis around, in other periods of time, it's happened as well. In fact, the entire existence of the Jews is marked by persecution. And we also know that many hate the elect of God and have found salvation in Jesus Christ. I believe there's real anger against God by those who feel that because God loves the, loved the Jews and they were favored above others, that means he didn't love them as much. And yet, we've seen that God's favor did not mean an easy life with smooth sailing for the Jews. And that's true throughout history. It also does not mean an easy life and smooth sailing for many believers through history. It turns out that God's favor for eternity comes often with difficult temporary living here. For many, that means persecution to the point of death. Some say it isn't fair that God preferred the Jewish people. But people have been questioning God for all of human history. And just as he answered Job, he answers those who challenge his sovereign will today. And they challenge particularly in the area of election or predestination. They say it isn't fair. Or it isn't equitable that God would choose some for salvation and not others. And yet, we cannot escape the fact that Scripture practically screams to us that God does indeed choose those whom he will save. Even many Christians do not want to face what Scripture clearly teaches. At the same time as many Christians would defend God's right to give preferential treatment to Israel, they would deny his right to give preferential treatment to the elect. I'll say that again. Many Christians would defend God's right to give preferential treatment to Israel at the same time as they deny his right to give preferential treatment to the elect. But I plead with you again, don't take my word for it. 
but see what the scripture teaches about how God has chosen some for salvation. I believe that all of scripture shows us that God has the complete and unquestioned authority to do what is best. He is completely sovereign, including in salvation. He is the sovereign Savior. 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Romans 8, 29 to 30, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why did he do this? Romans 9, 23, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, these are just some of the passages in Scripture that teach that God himself chose those he would save before the foundations of the earth. He must be a Calvinist, someone might say. Well, let me tell you something. Kelvin did not write a single word of the scriptures I've read this morning. I believe I've quoted from Kelvin in the past, but not today. No, these verses are from God's holy word. I've seen people do quite a dance around them, trying to say they don't really say what they say. Yet the plain reading of scripture makes it plain that God is indeed sovereign in every area, including salvation. But some would say, God doesn't choose whom he saves. Well, what does that possibly mean? Does it mean that people have a choice, but God doesn't? And yet, God did choose. He chose who would be his apostles, including Paul. He chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. Paul knew very well the argument that would come against this teaching. He knew that people would say, it isn't fair that God elects some and not others. He predicted the argument, and he addressed it with a preemptive strike in Romans 9. Because Paul talked about how God chose to love Jacob and hate Esau. And then Paul wrote this, Romans 9, starting at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So God is sovereign. I've provided many passages of scriptures to show this, possibly more than I've done in any sermon ever before. But here's what you must do. You must study God's word and believe it. Not because I told you this is what it says, but because this is actually what it says. I've seen Christians, including our very dear friends, dance the crazy and contorted dance to deny that God chooses those he elected for salvation. But what does the plain reading of Scripture tell us? It's abundantly clear. Why does it bother some? I think there's several reasons. One reason it may bother you is if you think of someone you love and pray for and wonder if they are not among the elect. Or perhaps you yourself are worried about whether you are or are not one of the elect. Perhaps for some there's a bit of survivor's guilt. Do you know what survivor's guilt is? You'll find many people to our west probably feeling survivor's guilt after the hurricane. Now, it's not necessary to feel survivor's guilt, but many do. My house and family came out okay, someone might be thinking, but look at what happened to Sanibel Island. They feel happy to have been spared, yet at the same time they feel guilty for being happy. Survivor's guilt. Many soldiers come home from war with survivor's guilt. They saw their fellow soldiers gunned down before their eyes, and even in the joy of hugging their family when they get home, they can't help but think of those widows and orphans who will never hug their father again. And I believe many Christians, unable to answer the question, why me? Why did God choose to save me? Feel unworthy, and maybe a little guilty that they were saved and another one wasn't. And yet, Should not a family whose home was not damaged from the hurricane rejoice and thank God? 
Should not the soldier who lives thank God for his life? And should not the one who is chosen by God for this great salvation rejoice? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. We should rejoice. Remember these three points I made about how we should respond to our understanding of God's sovereignty. If God says something is good, it is good. If God says anything, it's right and true. And if God communicates something, we need to respect it by honoring him and believing what he has communicated. If you are a believer, let me give you one very positive note to end on. If you understand that God is sovereign in everything, that he truly knows what is best, then you will understand what it means when Scripture tells us that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And in addition to that thought, let me offer this one. If you have put saving faith in Jesus Christ and you understand that your salvation is the work of God and God alone, that he called you according to his purpose, that he foreknew you, that is, he loved you ahead of time, that he predestined you, that means your destination was chosen by him ahead of time, and he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, which means he's going to continue perfecting you till you are like Jesus. If you understand that those he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. If you understand these glorious truths, then you can feel absolutely secure that your salvation is not in your own hands to keep. But God sealed you from the moment you believed in the Holy Spirit. He sealed you in the Holy Spirit. Are you able to break that seal? I don't think so. He will finish the work he begun in you. He will see you through. It's his work, all of it, every single element of responsibility to see to it that you are delivered in the end is all of God's merciful provision. And he always completes what he said he would accomplish. And once you realize this, that you could not have saved yourself, nor could you have possibly kept your salvation once you had it, if it were up to you, then when you realize that, you realize that God himself holds your salvation secure. And now with this blessed assurance, you will be freed to live for him, not in fear of losing your salvation, but with a fervor and a passion to honor him with your life because of gratitude and because you want your life to bring him glory. If you grab hold of this truth, my friends, your freedom is even greater. And your obedience to him will be even better because it will not be to obey him in order to continue earning your salvation, which you can't do anyway. It will be because you realize your salvation was secure, not from the moment you think you accepted Christ. Your salvation was secure from before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth were laid. Your salvation was secure if you're in Christ. This realization 
will also cause you to hate sin more and to love righteousness instead because you will realize that you're marked with the mark of Jesus Christ who completed the work on the cross on your behalf. So there's no need for survivor's guilt because the choice was God's and not yours. And he's always right. Furthermore, instead of worrying more about those you're concerned with, may we all with more energy than ever plead with every person to put their trust in Christ. Here's the security we have in Christ. Jesus, as he was praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, said he would not lose any of those the Father gave him. And Jude 1 says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept. Kept. And kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are called, beloved, and kept. If God has prepared vessels for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, who are we to question this sovereign God? May the lives of the elect of Oasis Church reflect the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, before you go, usually the worship team comes up and we sing one more song, but Kevin has put together a video for us. We had the great privilege, 